you know, I've been around a long time. I know how hard this is. From the political science department at UW-Madison. Am I exasperated? Absolutely, I'm exasperated. I'm Adam Wigger. This country's gone through tough times before, and we're going to do it again. And I'm Sam Beisman. This is more work than in my previous life. I thought it would be easier. And this is 1050 Basketball. Today on 1050 Bascom, we are grateful for the opportunity to talk to Professor J. Michael Collins about his teaching, researching, and consulting work on personal finance and consumer decision-making. Professor Collins is the faculty director for the Center of Financial Security at UW-Madison and holds faculty positions in the School of Human Ecology and the La Follette School of Public Affairs. He is also a family economics specialist for the Division of Extension. Professor Collins founded the Policy Lab Consulting Group, a research consulting firm working with national foundations and government agencies, and co-founded Springfor, an online database for mortgage services and counselors. Last but not least, he also worked for Neighbor Works America and the Millennial Housing Commission. Oh, that, that sure is a lot. Thank you so much for being with us today, Professor Collins. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. We're just happy to have you here. Let's start off broadly and talk about your start, if you will, in terms of your background and maybe even choosing your major and a career path. You went to Miami University somewhat deceptively in Ohio. (laughs) What was your major? Did you start out from day one on campus deciding to be an economist and applied researcher and consultant or just give us a sense of how your intellectual and professional interests developed? Yeah, great. Yeah. So thanks for that question. Yeah, like like a lot of, you know, young people, I went to a state school without really any clue what I was going to do. So I liked history. I liked, I'm not sure I knew what political science was. I thought I knew what economics was because I had a high school economics class. And I took a lot of social science classes. I dabbled with becoming a teacher. So a high school teacher, I wanted to teach high school economics. I even did the student teaching. And then I realized that you don't really get to teach economics a lot in high school. Like you know, you're going to get stuck teaching, you know, American history seven times a day. And so I was sort of, you know, at odds of what I wanted to do. I was sort of interested in policy. This was the, you know, early '90s, and there was a sort of a lot of a, a much like now a lot of excitement about policies that were being put into place. Um, so I ended up working for a foundation out of school. So I worked on a community foundation in Cincinnati where we were doing really small grants, like you know, to nonprofit organizations of four or $5,000, you know, so they had to write these long proposals and I'd work with organizations to do that. But it got me really interested in nonprofits, community-based organizations, kind of this intersection of public-private uh, partnerships. And so that, that sort of put me on this path and be interested in policy and especially research and, you know, how these decisions are made based on research and evidence and sort of being part of all that. Mm-hmm. Well, then after your undergraduate studies, you went to the John F. Kennedy School of Government at Harvard for an MA before going on to get a PhD at Cornell. And we're kind of curious about your decision making and just kind of educational track there. Did you go straight through those educational programs, either from undergrad or between them? Or did you take some time off to work? We've got a lot of student listeners who are maybe making some of those same decisions as if they're to jump directly into grad school or maybe want to go and try to build some professional experience first. What 
decision did you make? And then what advice from that would you give to students who are maybe facing the same quandary? Yeah, I, I did not have a plan. So, you know, if, if you're graduating right now and saying like, I'm not sure what I'm doing, I think you're okay. You know, you can kind of do it by feel. So I worked for about three years at a foundation. So I was the bottom of the rung, right? So I was the lowest possible person in a 12 person organization. But I saw that the way that I was going to be able to be more, you know, more engaged, more involved in decision making was to have another degree that, you know, all the people who were at the management level, who were leading projects, who were, um, you know, the people even coming in because we were doing grants to nonprofits, you know, they had more training. Um, and so that's when I went after the master's in public policy, which is it's kind of a a blend of management and, you know, some political science and politics and some economics and research and evaluation. It's kind of a, a little bit of each. So the closest here at, at UW is the La Follette School and, and that degree, the, the MPA. So it's a little bit like that. Um, so it's a two-year degree. Um, I was lucky that I was able to get a fellowship for that. And that fellowship actually had a stipulation in it that I had to work for five years in a nonprofit organization. So after I graduated with that um, master's, I worked for this national nonprofit organization called Neighborhood Reinvestment Corporation. Um, this was the late 90s and right around when the housing market was taken off. So I was working on affordable home ownership um, all across the country. So it was a great kind of opportunity for me to learn about um, the housing issues that people faced in all, like I worked in New Mexico and California and uh, Missouri and Chicago, a lot of work in Chicago and sort of got a, you know, a sense of, of what a lot of those issues were. Um, and I think what I took away from that experience was, you know, again, sort of now sort of in the middle of the organization. And I, you know, we got to work a little bit with the Office of Management and Budget in Washington, D.C. and some of the think tanks and, you know, at, at state government. And I realized that these people were making decisions based on, you know, whatever evidence and research they could grab onto, right? So, you know, it was really important to have really good research available to make these decisions. And so that's really what started to drive my interest in like thinking to myself, maybe I should be one of those people creating the research instead of trying to scramble and find the research. And so, as I said, part of my work was in Chicago. So in the early 2000s, Chicago first started to see cracks in the housing market where foreclosures were spiking. And I started to do some research around foreclosures in Chicago. And then by 2004, this is what I wanted to do. So I ended up starting my PhD at Cornell and in, in their policy analysis and management program, which again is kind of a, um, you know, economics based uh, program, but also blends some, some management and policy um, and really focused on what was going on with the foreclosure crisis. So this was 2004. By the time I graduated in 2008, that was a hot topic. <laughs> There's a lot of interest in uh, during the housing bust in the mortgage market, what went wrong. Um, and so my focus became increasingly on the issues that individual consumers and households face. So how did families weather that crisis? And more importantly, what could policy do to help them, you know, either prevent it in the first place or help them when the problem started? So that was really launched my, my PhD research and the research that I've done ever since I've come here. Well, that's, that's fascinating. And speaking of which, could you kind of continue this trajectory of your professional narrative from graduating and receiving your PhD at Cornell to uh, eventually assuming your many roles at UW-Madison? Yeah, so I had never been to UW-Madison. Uh, when, when I applied for a job here, it was 
the prior dean in the School of Human Ecology knew the dean at Cornell. And so, you know, the dean was actually, actually one of my, on my committee of my dissertation committee. And he said, you got to go to Madison and, and check out this job. So I really didn't know what I was getting into, but it turned out to be a great match. I think because of places at, at Wisconsin, like the Institute for Research on Poverty, like the La Follette School, like the School of Human Ecology, the School of Social Work, there's just a lot of interest in, you know, especially social science and how you use social science in an applied way to influence policy. And so, you know, my work broadly is on issues of economically vulnerable populations. So that's people who are in mortgage foreclosure, it's renters who are facing eviction, it's people who are in the social security system, maybe on disability, or who are older and facing poverty. So, you know, I think being able to work with other people here at, on campus and with students who are interested in those kinds of social science and social policy topics and the social welfare system and the safety net, that's been just a great place for me to do the research that I think is really interesting. Absolutely. And speaking of which, what would your advice be to students who may be graduating this year or in the coming years who you know, want to accomplish just a fraction of the success you've achieved? Do they need to have it all figured out? What are your thoughts on developing a plan of action for students just building up that early career? I didn't have a plan of action. I really didn't. I honestly thought I was going to go to law school. If you would ask me when I was uh, graduating from from uh, college, I thought I was going to end up going to law school. And I actually did uh, visit some, I visited some law school classes and I think it was like a torts class. And I sat through it and I said, no, I can't do this. <laughs> and, you know, and I did some informational interviews. I think that was really helpful too. I tried to just talk to people in my first part of my career. You know, I didn't rush into it. I didn't end up getting my PhD until I was in my thirties. So, you know, I think, I think taking your time is totally fine. Um, don't feel rushed. I know too many people who've pursued things that they don't love. Um, so, you know, taking your time to figure it out, um, you know, you trying to find the good opportunities that are out there that maybe are a growth experience that can help you. I think that's probably your best strategy. Now, if you have a great plan and you want to execute it, that's, that's great. You know, if that works for you, but you know, my experience was I kind of did a little, explored a little and tried to see where it went. I think that's comforting for a lot of graduates or soon to be graduates to hear. So if you don't mind, we'd love to jump into talking about some of your research. And there's so much that we could talk about given all of the work that you've been doing at the university and in your consulting. But we have a couple of jumping off points that I think we're gonna start by talking about. And one of those would be your role as the director of the Center for Financial Security at UW-Madison. Would you be able to tell us a little bit about the center and what its goals and mission is? Yeah, so the Center for Financial Security is a it's a campus wide center. Um, it's focused on what we describe as household finance. So, you know, this isn't finance like you might think about corporate finance or you know even public finance. This is individuals, families, and how consumers are making decisions about um, you know whether it's uh, borrowing or spending or saving. Um, really all across the life course. So I mean, our, our focus tends to be on economically vulnerable populations. So you can think about that as, you know, lower income people or uh, people who have special needs. But frankly, most of us at some point in our lives are economically vulnerable at some point. So you may feel that way right now as you're heading into the workforce, um, people who've lost jobs or who have had a major life event. I mean, the, the, the margin between being secure and insecure is, is oftentimes pretty fine. So, you know, I think it's it's something that we really take a holistic approach at looking at the entire life course. 
So for example, we've done, the center has worked with the US Department of Treasury to work on projects around financial access, financial inclusion, so things like getting a bank account and basic financial education for 10 year olds in schools. So we worked with the uh, Eau Claire school system to do some experiments where kids in school could open a bank account, could get financial education through their teacher. So that's pretty little kids, right? We've also done work with high school and then, you know, all the way to end of life. So what are the kinds of decisions that people are making about when they use social security? How do they spend down their assets? Uh, what happens if they end up in long-term care? Do they have insurance or coverage for that? So it's, it's really all across the, you know, the age spectrum and the life course spectrum, you know, a lot of things that you might think about as not being especially financial could really impact people. So for example, uh, the increasing divorce rate among older people, well, that actually results in, you know, not only breaking up a couple, but breaking up their income. So we have more, you know, people who are not widowed in uh, as they are older, but they're single because they've gotten divorced and what happens to the asset? What's what happens to their situation. So it's not just financial things. It's really sort of how the financial things affect people's lives and then how people's lives affect their financial things. So it's, it's, it's both of those. It's so interesting to hear about all like the, the breadth of the research, because there's so many different things that we could talk about on so many different episodes. And we'd love to have you back at some point to talk about all of them. But I know that one thing that is on the minds of a lot of students and at the center of a national debate and the web, uh, the center's website also points towards is student loan debt and the crisis of student loan debt, where the center's website has it at like $1.7 trillion of student loan debt here in the United States. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the approaches that the center has developed and uh, maybe a, a broader view of it in the context of the pandemic as well? Yeah, it's a, it's a big and important question, and I'm sure top of mind for, for a lot of graduates right now thinking about. So, you know, we've done a lot of research on debt in general. So, you know, student loan debt is, is very similar to mortgage debt or to auto debt or credit card debt. I mean, there's lots of debt that people take on. And in general, I think the household finance approach is that debt is good, right? It's, you know, not having access to debt is detrimental when people can't get access to a mortgage loan, they can't buy a house. And, you know, when, um, you know, people in a certain place or people of color or somebody else are excluded from being able to borrow, they don't have the same access to the same economic opportunity that others do. So um, student loans are really just another form of that. The, the caution with student loans, I think we have from a household finance perspective is that you're taking on debt when you're pretty young, right? So you're, you know, you may be eight, just barely 18 and you're lured into an institution that you find to be really fun, really exciting, um, you know, intellectually and socially. And, you know, there happens to be a price tag associated with it. And you don't pay a lot of attention to what that price tag is. You just sign on and then you don't really internalize how much that price tag is until six months after you graduate when that first student loan payment is due. Um, and so I think there's that aspect of it, which is that you, you know, unlike a car where you sign on the dotted line and drive off a lot and you know what your monthly payments are, you may not totally know what you're signing up for when you're first taking out a student loan. A couple of projects we've worked on um, over time. So one with, again, with the US Treasury, um, looking at especially students who are in sort of open enrollment 
online institution. So not, not, not your typical UW student. These are tend to be students who come back to school later in life, um, many of whom didn't go to the greatest high schools. Um, and they borrow from the first day. And so we worked on a project to try to help them to, before they signed for their loan, to understand the loan terms and loan repayment. You know, basically an online, like kind of cheesy video uh, where they could learn and, and do some, you know, understanding what their repayment plan would look like, how much they were going to have to pay. Um, and we actually didn't find that they borrowed less. We found that they, once they uh, enrolled in school, they took more courses. So they sort of recognized, like, if I work, if, if I want to get through this as fast as I possibly can, I need to take an extra class, right? So I can try to get done faster. So, you know, we didn't get to the point where we were able to see if they actually defaulted less, but um, it did, it did say that there is some margin to influence decisions. And so maybe, you know, paying your own way isn't a solution, but if you're going to use debt, fully understanding what the costs are and that maybe getting done in a shorter amount of time or focusing your attention on high payoff classes um, might be something that you can do. So um, that's just an example of a, of a simple kind of project we looked at. But, um, you know, I would say the, the main takeaway, and we worked with the state of Wisconsin, with the Department of Financial Institutions, lots of, of projects, um, you know, in the state and nationally around this topic. And, um, you know, the key things on my takeaways is it's very confusing. Uh, many students don't fully understand what they have. Then even after they have the loans, the repayment plans are constantly changing, whether you qualify for, you know, this plan or that plan or, you know, public loan forgiveness or whatever. There's just so much mis misinformation and it's easy for people to get confused. And frankly, the pandemic isn't helping <laughs> since so many people are in forbearance right now. They're not making payments you know, what the real costs of that might be very unclear to people, whether that impacts their repayment plans, whether they're able to pick up where they left off. Um, if they were behind before the pandemic happened, how does that affect them? So there's lots of things, frankly, we don't know. So I think it's, it's going to be a really important area to watch going forward. We obviously want people to get higher education. So, you know, getting rid of student loans doesn't make a lot of sense, but we also have to figure out how to deal with you know, this huge variety of people who are getting student loans from the, you know, 18 year old who's making a commitment to a four year college to the 35 year old who's making a commitment to a two year degree um, after taking a big break from high school. So making the system work better for a broad set of people is a really big policy challenge. Um, and, you know, often one I think that isn't well informed by research, it's a lot of you hear stories, right, of the somehow some some kid graduated with $200,000 in debt. And everyone's kind of scratching their head like, that's how's that even possible? Because you can't take out that much federal student loans in an in a undergraduate degree. So I mean, I think we have lots of mythology out there, and uh, lots of opportunity for good research to try to influence better policy choices. I want to follow up on something that you just kind of touched on really, really briefly and kind of dig down into it a little bit more and that you said that eliminating student loans might not work. And this is one of the, I guess, policies that's may kind of at the center of this debate and is definitely garnering a lot, a lot of attention. So could you maybe explain a little bit more as to why you think this policy might not be a solution for the student debt crisis? Yeah, I think there's variations on the policies that have been proposed. And, you know, one of them is to forgive a certain amount of student loan debt. 
Um, and there is some merit in that because so many people borrowed a relatively small amount and never finished their degree. Um, so the whole point of a student loan is that the return sort of, you know, air quote, return on investment is that you earn more once you have a degree. But if you start a degree and never finish, you never get that return. So you never really have the ability to repay those. And those tend to be, there's a lot of people who have small loans, but trouble repaying them because maybe they completed a semester or two and never finished the degree. So that loan forgiveness for, you know, say $10,000 would address a lot of those people who probably are never going to have an income boost because they never finished the degree. So there's a lot of, I think there is some merit to that. Um, but then you have, you know, other people maybe who want to do a four-year degree, um, they're, they're going to get a good return on investment. In other words, they're going to get a degree and they're going to be able to earn a lot more than they would have just with a high school degree uh, or even do a graduate degree. Um, you know, so, you know, a master's degree or a professional degree, those again have pretty good return. So, you know, borrowing to do those degrees makes a lot of sense. The key is to what's the term, you know, what's what are the terms? How soon do you have to pay it off? Is it obvious how much you're going to have to pay? Are the loan repayment plans clear from the get-go? Those kinds of things. So I think it's kind of different paths we have to make for, for different kinds of people and different kinds of student loan situations. The, a lot of the plans that we see right now are trying to make it really easy to get in. So the entry point, whether it's through community college or, um, you know, certain state uh, scholarships that allow you to start that first two years as cheaply, as easily, and as debt-free as possible. And then once you start to take off, you show some success, then really trying to, um, you know, offer some transparent and fair ways to finance that. Because that does make sense. I think we don't, what we don't want to have is a trap where people get in, fail, still have the debt, and then never can get, get out of it. You've done a lot of research and participated in a lot of high-level public discussions about the financial literacy crisis. Can you talk about this concept and how it impacts um, economic inequality and maybe policymaking? A bigger question I guess I have is, why is financial literacy a crisis and why is it a problem for democracy in the U.S.? Yeah, that's a, that's a great and really big question. Um, I actually really don't like the term financial literacy. I, I use it all the time and I, it makes me cringe a little bit. Um, because it's not like people are financially illiterate and, you know, a lot of low-income people are financially extremely savvy. Uh, you know, they're making ends meet with no, no money and they're, you know, juggling bills and making things work down to the minute of, you know, when things are due, you know, and extremely savvy about how they do that. So, um, I think it's sometimes when we talk about financial literacy, we are conflating that with lacks of lack of financial access or lack of good jobs or other kinds of things. Um, so I think, you know, we have to be careful when we talk about financial literacy, but that all that said, it is clear that there are a lot of people who um, either don't know a lot about how the, 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 particularly their personal finances work, or they don't feel confident to sort of take control of their personal finances. So, you know, j just going back to the student loan topic, like, and, you know, do people really understand what their repayment plan options are? Um, and if they don't feel confident about it, do they just sit on their hands or do they, you know, pick up the phone or go online and try to figure out how to sort this out? Um, and that's kind of the problem is so many of our uh, financial systems are, it's up to you. <laughs> it's up to the consumer, up to the household, up to the family to figure it out. So this is for student loan and student loan repayments. This is for retirement plans. This is for health insurance. This is, you know, I'll just go down and on and on the list. 
you have to figure this stuff out. It is different than it was, say, 30 years ago when you maybe you took a job and you had a pension. And on day one, you just automatically got enrolled in that pension and you automatically got enrolled in your health health uh, care. And the, by the way, the health care didn't have a lot of deductibles or copayments. And, you know, it was all done for you. Now you are on your own. And so you may not even have those benefits and you have to go out and find them on your own or you have to, you know, figure out ways to, to make all that work. So it is a problem because we have shifted more and more responsibility to the individual. The products are more complicated than they were before. Uh, meaning you have to know more than you did before. Um, and when people don't know what to do, they either sit on their hands and stick, what, stick their head in the sand, whatever the metaphor is, um, and don't get things done, or they become potentially victims of somebody who says they know what the right thing to do is, who takes advantage of them. So maybe that's a salesperson or you know, maybe it's somebody who's just outright into fraud. So you know, I think there are a lot of aspects to this that we need to be careful about. You know, and you mentioned that, you know, how this, this connects to democracy and, you know, sort of political action, it does all connect because when people aren't empowered financially, they're not really empowered in terms of decision-making broadly. So, you know, having control over your finances, having control over um, at least the feeling that you know what to do when you're being mistreated or to make things better, I think is, a, is an important part of our democracy. So trying to figure this out is, is important. Now, am I saying that you all should take a financial literacy class? No, I mean, I think that it's much bigger than that. It's not just high school financial literacy or college financial literacy. It's really a lifelong process that we all have to go through. And that's, uh, the, there's onus on employers to make sure that employees have these skills, you know, for parents to make sure that kids have these experiences. So it really is more than just, you know, taking a class. It's really thinking about ways to embed it across our institutions, across our programs, so that you know, we're making sure that people have the skills and um, you know, really access to the tools they need to manage their finances, however it makes sense for them. And so that's the other thing is we don't, I don't wanna sit here and say like, you should save and you shouldn't borrow or you know, wag my finger and say, this is wrong and this is right. It's really gonna vary for each person. And that's great. We want a system where you can customize your, you know, your financial products and your financial use for what you, your goals are. But that also, again, means more and more onus is on you to figure that out. To kind of follow up on that, what might a society look like in which there are, I suppose, like these opportunities to become more financially literate? Like would, you know, you, you talk about how there might be maybe financial literacy courses available at the UW, but they might not necessarily be mandatory or or some other kind of system like that. But what about other public schools? What might that look like? What other resources just might be generally available? Just like in a society in which we have taken significant steps to provide more opportunities to become financially literate, what might that look like? And then even what might that look like at a place like UW? Yeah. No, I think... Um... We're all trying, and I think UW is trying, and you know, high schools are trying. You probably had teachers who are good at this. Uh, you probably had parents who are good at this. You probably know people who aren't good at this. So, it, you know, I the metaphor or the I guess the analogy to, is thinking about health, and you know, the idea of you know what's healthy to eat, what kind of exercise is healthy, where do you go for information about those kinds of things, and you know, when I go to my doctor, they they have a nutritionist and they have pamphlets about 
um, you know, what's healthy and what's not, what's not healthy and, and, you know, what kinds of balance should I have in my diet and that kind of thing. So financial health, so to speak, is not really something we talk a lot about, right? It's not something that uh, employers are very focused on. Even at UW, we certainly offer you a course, but we're not, you know, really talking about financial health, the kind of, the same kinds of ways we're talking about other kinds of, you know, health, like physical health or exercise or nutrition or those kinds of things. So, I mean, I think often, and I think it's less true for, for you guys, for younger people than it is for maybe people my age, but a lot of people, people, money's a taboo and we don't want to talk about money or how much we make or the stress that we feel about our bills or, you know, those kinds of things. So it's even hard to have these conversations with, with a lot of people. Um, so, you know, the, I think the, the key thing we can start to do is just make financial health. And again, I don't like the term literacy because it's really more about what are the things that are important to you? And then do you feel confident to find the information, to find the services and tools to get the things done you need to do? And some of that's a class. Classes can help, but, um, you know, we can embed, you know, financial health into when you get your first bank account, we can embed it into um, when you reload your, you know, your card to swipe when you buy food, you know, whatever it is, we can find ways to, to do this, um, you know, really as part of the systems that we take part in regularly. We could even embed it in part of our healthcare system, right? So part of my healthcare visit could be talking about my financial health and how much that stresses me out and what kinds of services I could be referred to. So, you know, we've, our center has done a lot of work around this idea of financial coaching and that people might really benefit from a coach who can meet with them and say like, what's important to you? What's stressing you? What can you do? What kind of goals can you make to try to, to get on top of this? So you don't feel like you're falling behind, or you don't feel that sense of insecurity. And I do like that kind of coaching model and the idea that maybe financial coaching and embedding financial coaching, whether it's for high school students or college students in your first job, um, from new, newly married couples for people contemplating retirement and even seniors who are, you know, trying to manage the assets that they've saved up over time. You know, how can we use things like financial coaching to help people to really focus on whatever their goals are and the ways that they can, you know, make their finances work for them, um, whatever that means for them. So, you know, sort of getting those tools and resources to be broadly out there, kind of like what we see with nutrition or exercise or something else. That makes a lot of sense. I think the analogy to health instead of literacy is really a good way to put it too. I haven't heard that before. Um, we'd love to shift to something that you sort of touched on earlier, which is the application of consumer decision-making in the context of the pandemic. We'd love to know if you've learned anything about consumer decision-making during the pandemic that might lead to positive behavioral changes in the future in the U.S. as we kind of emerge on the other side. Yeah, it's, man, this has been, uh, it's amazing <laughs> that we're all coming through this, uh, you know, as things have emerged and, you know, who would have predicted a year ago, we'd be here where we are today. You know, what's really interesting is when the pandemic first hit, I, I was pretty pessimistic. I really felt like this was the, give me the beginning of a deep, dark downturn and it hasn't been. And I think there's two, two reasons why it hasn't been. One is the policy response. Like there was a significant policy response, um, that, you know, whether it's forbearance on student loans or the, you know, the stimulus payments or you know, other kinds of things that were out there, the extension of unemployment, 
Um, all those things could have kept people out. The safety net really kicked in um, to prevent people from really struggling. But other thing we saw is consumers really responded. I mean, they stayed home. They did not spend recklessly. We did not see, you know, spikes of, I don't know, uh, whatever boat sales or you know some something frivolous, right? So we didn't we didn't see um, people, and we, what we actually saw people was saving, and they've they're still saving. You know, we still haven't seen even as the pandemic starts to the worst of the pandemic starts to to start to slow down. People are still saving; they're not spending really yet. So you know, people have learned about the importance of emergency saving, especially you know having two to three months of of just liquid cash to bridge an emergency or a, a job loss, that kind of thing. I think they've learned too that the safety net works, right? Unemployment can really, you know, help you. And so, you know, I think we've probably seen some greater support for some of those safety net policies that are out there. So those are, you know, I think some positive shifts that we've seen. You know, we saw a lot of people also giving to charity, right? So we saw a lot of direct emergency assistant, millions of dollars where people just gave other people cash, um, whether through websites or whether through, um, you know, religious organizations or other kinds of, of affinity groups, you know, the, the idea that some people are really struggling. So we're, you know, we're literally going to give, give cash. And so, you know, I think that response too of, of sort of helping each other out is a, another positive uh, change that we've seen. On the flip side of that, not to dwell on the pessimistic view necessarily, but are there things that might concern you about consumer decision-making or bad pandemic habits, for instance, that some of us might've developed? Yeah, I mean, I think there are reasons to be worried. <laughs> not, not to be too pessimistic, but um, you know, one is that there has been a ton of support, right? So those, those payments are gonna stop, whether it's unemployment or stimulus or whatever. You know, people are going to have to go back to work and start to manage finances and probably spending more, right? Even coming back into the workforce or whatever it is. So all those things are going to have to be juggled. Those forbearances, so like those student loan forbearances, those are going to end. Um, we've already seen with the mortgage uh, forbearances that have ended. So now people's payments are due. Oh, and by the way, those payments are higher than they used to be because the amount they weren't paying for a while got piled back into the current payments. Um, so that could have some you know, some reverberations through people's finances as they start to dig out of this hole. And it's going to be a while. I mean, I keep saying it's going to be two or three years before we really know how this has affected people's finances. I would say the other thing that, that I really took away from this is when the lockdowns really started in March and April, and there was a lot of interest in particularly like trying to get money to service workers or domestic workers. And, you know, so organizations said, we need to get money out to people who need it. How do we do that? Like we can't, mail money. We can't mail cash. Oh, these people don't have bank accounts. We can't just put money in their bank accounts. Like we have a terrible system to move money around in our country. And so, you know, the idea of making electronic payments reliable and cheap and easy, even for people who aren't banked or who don't have a, you know, an Apple device, or, you know, those kinds of things. We've, we're way behind the rest of the world in our payment systems. You know, the U.S. probably has one of the slowest and, you know, we don't have real-time payments. We're a few years away from that, which is kind of an amazing for such a developed country that we can't actually distribute money very effectively. So I think that's another thing too. Like we have some big infrastructure issues around our finances that we probably need to address as a country. On the topic of consumer decision-making, a lot of consumers are deciding to buy houses and they're is a pretty big housing boom right now. And I know that that is true even here in Madison where houses are 
going fast and hot. Can you give us a little bit of your view about what that indicates about uh, people's like recovering financial health or financial health that never had to recover? Um, And maybe also put it in the context of the last time that there was major movement in the housing market in 2008. Yeah. And you know, for, for anybody who doesn't remember 2008, that was bad, right? That was a really, really bad situation. And as that housing market was heating up in 2006, 2007, a lot of people would say, no, no, this is, this is different. This is, you know, we've had housing busts before, but not this time. And of course, you know, this time wasn't different. It was the same as always. Um, And so there are lots of reasons to be worried about that. You know, a few things to, sort of just note about the differences from today. The housing market really stunk from like 2008 to 2015. I mean, it was a good five, six, seven years where the housing market was pretty flat, where loans weren't very accessible, where people weren't buying very much, especially young people weren't buying. So in some ways we have this pent up demand that is catching up and sort of like reverting back to the mean in some ways. But we're also the pandemic triggered a lot of people to say like, uh, you know, I'm working from home, I'm living from home, I want a nicer home. And so demand, I think, shifted. And I think we have some real issues, especially in places like Madison, where we don't have a lot of supply, like the there's not enough supply for the demand for housing that's out there, um, especially, you know, high quality, affordable uh, places to buy a home. So, um, you know, there are lots of reasons why we don't have more supply. Wisconsin, like many places in the country, has not built housing, especially affordable housing, because people say, I don't want, I don't want it near me. I don't want it. Uh, you know, they make it hard for, for people, for housing to get built. So we have some structural issues that are there. Um, but you know, the, the long run, um, trend on housing, uh, will probably at some point revert back to its, you know, so we'll start to see this curve start to come down. Prices start to come down. Maybe that's four or five years. And I think the big question is, does that come down softly or does it come down in a harder way? And, you know, we don't, we don't exactly know yet, but I guess if you're out there and you're thinking about buying a house and you're part of this scramble to, you know, borrow more and pay a premium and, you know, taking a break, taking a beat and not moving so fast might not be the worst thing in the world. Uh, you know, sort of as, as, you know, we see sort of how things play out over the next year or so. Let's talk about old people and retirements. In 2019, Governor Evers appointed you to his retirement task force. What are the main issues you guys are addressing and what should more of us know about social security now and for the future? So yeah, Governor Evers shortly after came into the his role as the governor, created the task force with the state treasurer, Gadlewski, to try to understand what the state could do to support people's saving for retirement. And it was patterned in many ways after what states like Oregon and Illinois and California had done in creating a state savings option. So the main issue is that a lot of employers just can't, they're not big enough to be able to give you a decent retirement savings plan. So everybody who's working is contributing to Social Security but Social Security was never designed to support more than, you know, a third to a half of your actual income on retirement. The plan was always be that you would be saving at your job for the other half, you know, so whatever that might be. 
which is great. If you work for a larger employer, they probably have a 401k or maybe even a pension and it's probably pretty good. And the, the fees aren't very high and you have good investment options. You, you know, the state of Wisconsin, UW, we, we have a pretty good plan, but that's not where most Wisconsinites live or, or work. They work for smaller businesses and those smaller businesses, if I have 50 employees and I go to a you know, major retirement plan provider and say, can you give me your best deal? They're going to say, no, like you don't, you only have 50 employees. Like that's not, that's, we'll lose money on you. We're going to charge you really high fees or we don't want your business. And so as a result, you know, a lot of, you know, it's about a million employees, a million workers in the state of Wisconsin who don't have a good savings option at their, uh, where they work. So, you know, that's a, it's a huge chunk of our workforce that can't save at work. And the reality is, is that saving outside of work is really, really hard. The main way that anybody saves is, you know, pay yourself first. A chunk of your paycheck every week or every month goes into your, your savings. So what the task force has really looked at is what other states have done to create a statewide retirement plan. So that we're calling it Wisconsin Saves. It's a proposal. It's not, not a move forward yet. It has had bipartisan support from committee members on both sides of the aisle. But it would basically be a plan that the state would be, you know, think about all these small employers, if they could all collectively come together and try to compete for a really good retirement plan, they'd have a lot more clout, a lot more buying power. So it's just really providing that buying power through the state. So the state will organize a, a plan that will be run by the private sector. So it'll be the same 401k investment companies that you see advertised on TV um, that will run the plan. It's just that the state will pull it together and Every employee in the state of a, you know, of a medium-sized business or small business that doesn't have a plan would automatically be enrolled in this plan. And that would give them the ability to save for retirement. So that, that's the main proposal. There are a number of other pieces to the task force we've been looking at too, including things like emergency savings so that people don't spend their retirement savings when the next pandemic or next you know, crisis occurs. But the a, a big takeaway from this for me is that the state ends up paying for people who retire and are poor, right? So if you are approaching retirement, you can't work anymore, you claim your social security, it's not enough to get by, what do you do? Well, you get on Medicaid, well, that costs the state money. You have to get on food assistance, that costs the state money. You know, it's all these programs that older people end up needing, state won't have to do if we have a good saving system in place. And so, you know, I think this is a smart investment by the state that in the long run will actually save taxpayers money. And I think that your discussion of that plan served as a really good example of something you were talking about at the beginning of our conversation today and how your research is kind of seeks to inform and address policy issues and engage policymakers, regardless of what side of the aisle they're on. And I don't need to tell anyone on the podcast this, but we're living in incredibly polarized times. So I want to ask, how do you go about working effectively with policymakers on both sides of the aisle? And do you have maybe any strategies that you can share with some of our listeners who may have, you know, thrown food across the family dinner table over certain political arguments about trying to have policy discussions or debate in such a polarized environment? Yeah, it's hard. And I, you know, I, I it has definitely gotten harder, um, you know, over the course of my career, for sure. I mean, my, I think my assumption has always been that if you start with 
research and evidence, you can start to get a foothold, right? You're not going to necessarily convince somebody, but for example, on the governor's task force, and we talked about retirement savings, there were definitely, you know, more conservative elements uh, on the committee who said, you know, the state has no role. The state should not have a role in telling people what to do. And they certainly shouldn't be involved in, you know, what the private sector does, which is providing financial services to individuals. And so then we have to sort of go through the process of like, well, where do things fall apart? They fall apart with these small businesses who can't compete. And it's a best you know if you do scale and sort of, you know, really um, breaking things down and incrementally going through them. It's not like your research, if you're doing research or if you're working on policy is going to, you know, you're going to present something and suddenly minds change, right? It's very incremental, right? So it's, you know, a little bit of movement, a little bit of movement. And, you know, frankly, it happens on both sides where, yeah, the other, the side that maybe thought that the state should actually run the plan says, no, maybe we should contract it out to a private sector provider. Like, you know, sort of you get a little bit of movement over time. As I've worked with federal agencies and state agencies, it's often very incremental. You know, you're studying very, very small small changes to programs, but, you know, you, you have to keep that long game in mind that, um, you know, a lot of small program changes result in much better programs and then ultimately the outcomes that you care about. So I think patience is probably the, the main thing that I've learned. You just have to sort of keep, keep plodding along and stick to the, stick to the evidence. Don't get too far out over what you can support with what the data might say. And then while we're kind of on the subject of these policy discussions and deliberations, what might surprise us about how policy discussions and initiatives you work on look behind the scenes, or maybe to put it into musical theater terms, could you take us into the room where it happens? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I wish it was that dramatic and exciting. It's really boring, a lot of it. I mean, so so honestly, um, something silly, like a really good slide in a presentation, um, a really good figure in a memo, like those kinds of things have an enormous amount of weight. It's, it's shocking, right? Like, you know, the, it's not like a great presentation. It's something that sticks with people that they focus on and keep coming back to over and over again. You know, stories really matter too. I think that's the other thing is, you know, the facts on the ground influence policymakers to some degree. But, you know, when I was a young and, you know, that story like sticks with them or, you know, my son or daughter did that, you know, like that kinds of stuff um, has a lot of, uh, of weight too. So the process is extremely messy and sloppy fits and starts. And so it's like, we're moving forward and now we're moving backwards. And, you know, sometimes policy decisions get made that are not where anybody thought they were going to go. Like it just, it kind of goes in a direction that you, you don't anticipate. And then it works out, right? I mean, so you, you sort of, again, have to sort of hope for the best. Um, you know, typically the kinds of programs I've been involved with, you know, the big, bold decisions don't last that long because, you know, somebody objects to it or ends up being, you know, poorly implemented or whatever. So, you know, it tends to be very, very incremental. So, yeah, I mean, there probably is a room where things happen, but it's more likely that there's a stream of conference calls where things slowly move forward. And that's probably more accurately about how a lot of policies uh, work happens. We want to be respectful of your time today. And I know that there's so much more that we could talk about, but our last question for you is something that we have been asking all of our guests because it has been, as we all know, a very long and sometimes dark 
and stressful year. So we've been asking all of our guests to end with something they are hopeful about. And it could be in the context of financial health or anything related to what we've talked about. I do feel a, a, a lot of optimism and in part just because I think the last year has shown us how resilient we are. And, you know, and there's a lot of ugly things that I don't like about the last year. I mean, whether it's around racial equity or, um, you know, kind of the politics or whatever else that we've seen, but day to day, people have weathered this incredibly well, whether it's students, you know, juggling, you know, the, the awkwardness of Zoom and being lost and trying to figure out what's going on or, you know, workers who are juggling their, you know, preschool kid at the same time that they're trying to, you know, keep income coming in or, you know, whatever it might be. By and large, most of us, I mean, if we've stayed healthy and been able to, to get by are, are coming out of this okay. And so, you know, I think it does show a lot of the resilience. That resilience, I think, has always been there. It's just collectively everybody facing it at once um, really brings that into stark contrast. And so I think we're, um, you know, we should feel good about our ability to deal with tough, tough things. And so for students, you know, you've dealt with a really tough year. You should be able to deal with some really tough life things ahead. And so I think, you know, we can take that resilience and sort of put it in the bank for a while and hopefully it gets us through some of those tough times ahead. Very well said. Well, thank you so much for being with us, Professor Collins. We hope you come back soon because there's obviously so much we could talk about that we don't have time to talk about today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. For more information about 1050 Bascom, visit polisci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. 1050 Bascom is edited by Adam Wigger and Sam Beisman, produced by Amy Gangle and recorded remotely for now.